Before we get started, I'd like to wish everyone tuning in a happy holidays. It's been a hell of a year and very much not in a good way. We've been separated from loved ones, friends, and family by these times, and it's never a good feeling. Albeit, this is only a temporary separation, and for me personally, some inconvenience and discomfort now are small prices to pay for being able to all come together sooner and saving lives in the process. I hope you're all healthy and doing as well as can be done in this unusual time, and may the next year be better. While we are on the subject of holidays, one of my favorite bits of well-wishing that I can say aloud on this non-explicit podcast is Peace on Earth and Goodwill to All Mankind. It started out as a mistranslation of the Annunciation to the Shepherds, the story in the book of Luke in the Bible, where the angels told the shepherds about the birth of Jesus Christ, but has taken on a more theologically neutral tone as time passed. What I like about it is just the general simplicity of that hope. Just get along. For the love of everything, just get along. That overall hope can be applied both to individuals and, over the last four years, between countries and leaders of countries as well. Two of these countries that have had widely variant, but overall cordial relationships, are Canada and the United States. On paper, they are potentially two of the closest relationships that countries can have, bound together by robust economic trade, the single largest undefended land border in the world, and a migration of citizens back and forth for tourism, trade, and sometimes just to start a new life. As a Canadian myself, I would have to look very hard to find something not affected in Canadian life by this friendship with the United States, whether culturally or materially. We have gone to war together, we have forged peace together, and overall, on the world stage, we stand together much more often than not. There are very few other countries that are more interconnected and have benefited from that interconnectedness, as Canada and the United States. However, this was not always the case. Canada and the United States were not always on the same page. And even up until 1974, when the plan was declassified, the United States had a plan commissioned to invade Canada as a part of a potential war with the British Empire, called War Plan Red. However, this isn't the major fact in this episode. The major fact is that Canada had a plan to invade the United States as well. And it was created 10 years before War Plan Red. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and this is What? Explain. Before we get into the details of the Canadian invasion plan of the United States, some context is almost definitely going to be needed. And for that, we take you back to 1918, after World War I ended and the Treaty of Versailles was signed in 1919. There were two major economic and military powers left in the world, the British Empire and the United States. The British Empire had enjoyed dominance over the seas for decades previously, and the British Navy was the pride of their armed forces and the terror of their enemies. Additionally, much of the function of their empire was dependent on British ships being able to go wherever they pleased with impunity throughout their empire. So in addition to having some of the largest military and trading fleets in the world, Great Britain was also quite dependent on the goods that they were bringing in from the colonies. What the people who lived in their colonies thought of that arrangement is a very different subject and will definitely be the topic of a future episode, 
But when 1919 rolled around, the British all of a sudden realized that they were no longer the undisputed champion of the seas. The United States had beforehand held something of an isolationist view with regards to European affairs, reasoning that if it didn't make its way onto American shores, they were far enough away that it did not affect them. In World War I in particular, President Woodrow Wilson advocated for neutrality, and with no vital interests at stake, many Americans supported that position. The United States were not a part of the large, interconnected web of alliances and promises that brought many European countries into choosing one side or another in World War I, and in 1914, the predominant view was that the United States should stay out of this European war. The neutrality was so strong in the United States that American companies in fact continued shipping food and raw materials to both sides of the war during the first two years. However, this neutrality was not to last. On May 15, 1915, a German U-boat, or submarine, sank the Lusitania, a British ocean liner, which resulted in the deaths of over 1,200 people, including all 128 Americans on board. This incident put a strain on the relationship between the United States and Germany, with President Wilson condemning the use of unannounced submarine warfare, but stopping short of declaring war on Germany. However, public opinion shifted enough that many Americans were willing to join the fight, even if their country wasn't. Many Americans volunteered to join the French Foreign Legion in order to fight against the Central Powers. Even former President Theodore Roosevelt spoke up publicly against the non-intervention policy and advocated for going to war. The United States at the time was not the military powerhouse that we know today. In fact, there was some worry at the time that they did not even have the military strength to deal with the enemies at their border. Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa had staged a raid on Columbus, New Mexico on March 9, 1916, and President Wilson was very much under pressure to have a military response ready. Within a week, 6,600 American troops entered into Mexico with the stated goal of defeating Pancho Villa's forces and capturing Villa. Wilson signed the National Defense Act in June of that year, which expanded both the U.S. Army and the National Guard, and in August signed additional legislation designed to increase the size of the U.S. Navy. The U.S. expedition into Mexico never captured Villa, but the U.S. military had grown in size as a response. While this was all happening, German U-boats were still attacking civilian vessels, and in March of 1916, sank a French passenger ship called the Sussex, which went down with all hands on board, including several Americans. The U.S. again threatened to sever diplomatic ties with Germany, and in response, Germany issued the Sussex Pledge, which was a promise to eliminate unannounced attacks on passenger and merchant ships by submarine. However, Germany backtracked on that in January 31, 1917, announcing that they would, in fact, resume unrestricted U-boat warfare, internally reasoning that it would help them win the war before America would be able to join the Allies in battle. The United States officially severed diplomatic ties with Germany on February 3, 1917, and in February and March of 1917, German U-boats started specifically targeting American vessels. However, 
the hostilities between Germany and the United States weren't just limited to the sea. In January of 1917, British intelligence managed to intercept and decipher what they later called the Zimmermann Telegram, which was a communication from German Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmermann to Heinrich von Eckhart, the German minister to Mexico. In it, Zimmermann advises von Eckhart to propose an alliance between Germany and Mexico if the United States were to enter the war on the side of the Allied forces. In exchange for their alliance, Germany promised to support Mexico in regaining the land that they had lost to the United States during the Mexican-American War, namely Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. British intelligence gave the telegram to President Wilson on February 24th, and its existence was revealed to the press and to the American people on March 1st, 1917. This was the final push needed to move the United States into World War I, and on April 6, 1917, the United States Congress voted 373 to 50 in favor of adopting a war resolution against Germany. Then the American war machine ground into gear. At the time of the war resolution, the U.S. Army only had 133,000 members. In May of 1917, Wilson passed the Selective Service Act, which resulted in over 2.8 million Americans being drafted into the U.S. Army by the end of World War I. Two million more Americans voluntarily served in the armed forces during the conflict, leaving them at just under 5 million members total. When the First World War concluded in November of 1918, over 2 million U.S. troops had been shipped over and served in the Western Front in Europe, and the United States now had a significant place at the table in terms of world affairs. They had a massive army that had been put into effect in just under a year, and a navy that had essentially sprung up over the same period, with many of the traditional European powers decimated by the First World War. The United States was in something of a prime position to take a bigger place on the world stage, both militarily and economically. With this new equilibrium, both Great Britain and America came to unsettling realizations. Both of them had massive armed forces buildups, both of them had large naval presences, and both countries have had something of a history of fraught relations. Britain realized that keeping their empire in its current state relied on military and economic supremacy, both of which the emergent United States threatened. Additionally, the United States had commercial interests which ended up financing much of the rebuilding of Europe, including Germany and Austria-Hungary, two of the main central powers, which gave them a significant amount of diplomatic and economic power in those areas. Some of these considerations, as well as the post-war prosperity of some of the companies in the United States, led to the Roaring Twenties, a time of plenty and prosperity in the United States. Afterwards, both nations internally planned for many scenarios, including war against each other. Canada, as a part of the British Empire at the time, played a significant calculation in both of those plans, as it shared a massive land border with the United States, and had ports available for the still massive British Navy to dock and deploy soldiers from. And so the planning began on both sides. Of course, now we are very much going to start with the Canadian plan. Defense scheme number one, as the plan was called, 
was very much a preemptive attack by Canada on the United States in the event of imminent hostilities between the United States and the British Empire. This plan was created on April 12, 1921, by Lieutenant Colonel James Buster Sutherland Brown, the Canadian Director of Military Operations and Intelligence. Brown was a logistics officer during World War I, helping first to organize the massive Canadian war effort to bring the soldiers and supplies over to the Western Front in 1916, and then participating in many of the major Canadian offensives in World War I, including the Second and Third Battle of Ypres, the Battle of the Somme, the Battle of Vimy Ridge, and the Hundred Days Offensive that marked the end of the First World War. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for his actions, as well as being made a companion in the Order of St. Michael and St. George, a British military honor bestowed upon those who had provided great service to the Commonwealth. In 1920, he was assigned the position of Director of Military Operations and Intelligence, with the responsibility of developing contingency war plans for a wide variety of scenarios so that Canada would not be caught off guard. That is to be said, this was not a plan devised by someone who didn't know what they were doing. The plan concentrated primarily on seizing portions of the northern United States, or at least the states with direct land or sea borders with Canada. The minute that imminent hostility between the United States and the British Empire were to start breaking out, the Canadian military would need to spring into action. The attack would come simultaneously in four different sections of the border. On the Pacific side, troops stationed in Vancouver and Victoria, British Columbia, would be sent to take over Seattle, Portland, and Spokane, Washington. Troops stationed in Alberta and Saskatchewan would be sent to seize Fargo, North Dakota, and Great Falls, Montana, before moving eastwards to capture Minneapolis, Minnesota. Troops in Quebec would be sent to hold Albany, the capital of New York State, while troops in the Maritimes, the eastern Atlantic provinces in Canada, would be sent to attack Maine. When resistance to the Canadian incursions grew too strong, the troops would be given orders to withdraw back into Canada, destroying bridges and railways in order to hinder the U.S. response. Defense scheme number one was never about Canada taking control of the United States. In fact, it was viewed even by its most ardent supporters at the time as mostly a stopgap measure to buy time for Britain to send soldiers in order to fend off an American attack along an essentially undefendable border. Despite the comedic sort of idea of a Canadian invasion of the United States, it is important to note just how dead serious Brown was about his plan. A staunch Canadian loyalist and a believer in the British Empire, Brown had long been suspicious of the intentions of the United States, even before their initial neutrality and late entry into World War I, as well as their post-war benefiting from the state of the world. He was so invested in this plan that he and a few other subordinate officers in the Canadian forces risked a diplomatic incident by going into both New York State and Vermont in plainclothes disguise with the explicit purpose of reconnaissance in order to fine-tune defense scheme number one. However, with all the planning, recon, and analysis that was poured into defense scheme number one, Brown forgot one major thing. To confirm with the British that they would, in fact, come to Canada's rescue in the event of an American incursion. As it turns out, they very much would not have. 
documents declassified by the British government gamed out many of the same scenarios as other countries, but reached a different conclusion with regard to the Americans. The British concluded that sending a large armed force to Canada would not be in their best interest, as they would not be able to defend Canada against the much larger American force. Therefore, defense scheme number one would have amounted to basically a suicide run for the Canadian force members that would have gone into the United States. Defense scheme number one was eventually abandoned in 1928 by orders from the Chief of the General Staff, Andrew McNaughton, citing that more peaceful U.S.-British relations were being sought after. Brown was initially ridiculed when Defense Scheme No. 1 was declassified, but when details from the American War Plan Red followed in 1974, Brown was praised for his foresight to start developing the scheme almost a full decade before War Plan Red came into existence. Granted, Brown had retired from the Canadian forces in 1936 after almost a decade of rising tensions with McNaughton, and passed away in 1951 so he wasn't around to deal with either the ridicule or the praise. Ever since, there have been no further plans drawn up to invade the United States. At least, that have been declassified so far. So, there you have it, everyone. A fun little bit of Canadian history to tide you over just in time for the holiday season. Even the best of friends and staunchest of allies can have some preparations made for a worst-case scenario and Canada and the United States are no different. Granted, for those Canadians who think that the United States invading Canada is a laughable notion, I have a couple questions. How many American TV shows do you watch? Movies? Radio shows? Podcasts? How about some video games? Any sort of cultural product whatsoever. Canada is one of the few countries in the world whose most-watched TV show, their most popular movie, or even the vast majority of the media we consume, we don't make ourselves. It's exported from the United States. We watch the same TV channels as them, the same movies as them, and rarely does it work the other way around. Every single show on the top 10 most-watched television shows in Canada in 2019 was made by an American company or studio. Likewise for the top 10 movies and TV shows watched in Canadian Netflix in 2019. Some may have filmed in Canada, but that's about it. In terms of a cultural invasion, having a massive border with the world's largest exporter of pop culture is going to have an effect. To be clear, having an open trade border with the United States has overall been a benefit for Canada, and vice versa. But this holiday season, maybe buy something local if you can. I guarantee the owners of the business would appreciate it, especially now. But that's me getting off my soapbox, and now I wish you all a happy holidays. Stay safe, be well, and I'll talk to you in a couple weeks on New Year's Eve. Thank you all for listening, and I wanted to do a quick thank you to Sarah Smith, who did the excellent holiday touch-up of the What Explain Art. She does graphic design, and she's also the co-host of an excellent podcast called The Millennial Cast. If you all have any curiosity about really anything millennial-related, as discussed by the two delightful co-hosts, I highly recommend it. I've been on a couple times, and they are currently looking for guests, so... Do you want to be on a podcast? Do you have something millennial to add? Hit them up! Their information is in the show notes. Have a good night!